Greetings, friends. I'm John Haspel. This is a Dhamma talk from Cross River Meditation Center in Frenchtown, New Jersey. If you find benefit from this talk, please support the restoration, the preservation, and the presentation of the Buddha's Dhamma with your donation at becoming-buddha.com. Thank you. Peace. So the 21st chapter of the Dhammapada is the Pakinkabhaga, and it teaches, uh, or it is a teaching on the greater happiness that's established through the Dhamma and the lesser happiness uh, that uh, always arises from entanglements in the world or seeking your happiness in external uh, people, events, uh, and ideas. Um, and we're getting towards the end of the Dhammapada, so this, uh, each chapter now, uh, there's four more after this, um, <coughs> described in one way or another the culmination of the path or why we would actually bother to, to develop an Eightfold Path. Uh, the Buddha's words. It is by releasing the bond to lesser happiness that the wise develop the greater happiness. And of course, the Buddha's referring to the Dhamma always. Um, so the lesser happiness would be anything that uh, is not developed through the Dhamma, meaning things of the world, but it can also mean uh, other so-called spiritual or religious pursuits. Remember, the Buddha was talking to a time that was very similar to ours, that there were the, the great mass of people were either uh, disinterested, which, which most people weren't, uh, or were seeking salvation in one way or another. That's still true today, 2,600 years ago. The, 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 the most motivating factor... And I would say the, the most prevalent mental disease is the messianic, uh, the belief in that you are a messiah or that you're here to save the, save the world or save the universe. And again, that doesn't mean we shouldn't be altruistic or compassionate. And I won't get into a long discussion about that. But when that root idea is itself rooted in ignorance of Four Noble Truths, only stress and suffering will follow. It is by releasing the bond to a lesser happiness that the wise develop to greater happiness. So again, I'm going over this first line over and over again, but there's so much in here. The Buddha is telling us exactly how to do it. But we have to be re willing to release the bonds, what we're clinging to. And we understand now at this point that really what we're clinging to is ignorance of Four Noble Truths and its manifestations that have established a fabricated view of self. I've created this in the world. And since I've created it, I am now charged with defending it or recognizing it and letting it go. The wise, understanding the greater, renounce the lesser. It's a direct engagement with our own minds here. Those entangled by the, by the bonds of hate, seeking happiness while hurting others, can never be released from hatred. Those are very strong words, but there's also a, a milder, milder component of this. Hatred is a strong word for aversion. So any, any type of aversion can manifest as hatred, and it can be classified as hatred. But the primary uh, manifestation of that is ill will towards ourselves and towards others. The defilements of greed, aversion, and deluded thinking increase for the arrogant and the mindless who avoid what is skillful and join what is, with what is unskillful. So if you want to know what is unskillful, that is rooted in the defilement. It's rooted in greed, aversion, and deluded thinking. Um, the best way to find out what we're grasping after 
is to look at what we have in our lives. Look at what we have in our lives. Krishnamurti used to say, look at the lives you're living. But it, it was done with a, a critical but dispassionate eye of how we're living. And that's up to our, us as individuals. There's no one in the world or no grand mystical entity that can or should judge each individual. It's up to us. Because the only value that can come from me changing my mind is if I decide to do it myself. If I do it from coercion, if I do it out of continued ignorance, if I do it to be one of a crowd, I'm only increasing my own ignorance. If I do it through understanding Four Noble Truths, now I am liberated. The defilement cease for those with refined mindfulness who clearly understand Four Noble Truths, who practice John, the Buddha, the Buddha always made a point that his meditation method was unique and it was required to develop his Dhamma, who practice Jnana, abandon what is unskillful and develop what is skillful. Even that last is not left up to conjecture. Excuse me. And it's not left up to grasping, it's not left up to ideologies, it's not left, left up to mass hypnosis, meaning because so many people are doing a certain thing or believing a certain idea, well, it must be okay, I will. The Buddha was the most radical thinker of his time and ours, and we are becoming that way. And I don't mean radical in a way that is isolating or hurtful. In fact, it's just the opposite. It's a way of fully joining, fully engaging in my human life in this moment without the need for anything or anyone to be any different than they are. Think about that for a moment. That's what the Buddha realized and what he taught and what he's been teaching for 2,600 years. A dispassionate, impersonal way of remaining conflict-free in our minds and so conflict-free in the world. The disciple, having slain mother and father, I'll explain that in a moment, don't get too upset. The disciple, having slain mother and father, two warrior kings, a tiger and a conquered country, travel in peace. How can that be? Well, mother and father represent craving rooted in eye-making. When you think about what mother and father do, they give birth to another human entity. The Buddha is using a very powerful metaphor. Mother and father represent craving rooted in eye-making. It's actually the perfect metaphor, isn't it? Because we can identify with those familial um, characteristics and craving and clinging that follow from that. The two warrior kings represent extreme views, ignorant of four noble truths. What do warrior kings do? They engage in battle with each other. The warrior kings, they're not peaceful kings. That's the perfect metaphor for what goes on within a conflicted mind, ignorant of four noble truths. The tiger represents the five hindrances. The five hindrances form feeling, perceptions, mental fabrications, and ongoing consciousness maintaining the prior four are the Buddhist description of the ongoing personal experience of suffering, characterized as those five clinging aggregates. That's represented by the tiger. And the country represents the sixth sense base. Again, think, think about the metaphor. The country is our abiding place. We abide in the world through what comes in contact with our sixth sense base, interpreted by the sixth sense, consciousness. And if that consciousness is rooted in ignorance, and everything that that person is interpreting through his senses, through their senses, has to be rooted in ignorance. Because the perception is. 
Because the mind is. Ignorant of what? Ignorant of four noble truths. Let me read that again, just understanding the metaphor now. The disciple having slain mother and father, two warrior kings, a tiger, and a conquered country, and conquered a country, travel in peace. We've conquered our sixth sense base. We've overcome the compulsive need to react to what's coming in to our senses. And we now use our senses the way they're meant to be used as a human being, to simply inform ourselves of what's occurring in this moment. Why? So that we can be present for what's occurring in this moment. That's called having a human life. There is no human life in living in the past or letting the past project your mind out of your body, out of what's occurring and into the future, which is how most human beings, including us, including this teacher, until he came to the Dhamma. Because ultimately the, the Dhamma resides and resolves itself in a mind united in its body that has recognized what it needs to recognize, what is unskillful, and abandon that. The disciple, having slain mother and father, two warrior kings, a tiger, and, a con and conquered a country, traveled without regret. Imagine living in the world without regret. Well, it's possible and it's wonderful. And how do we do that? How do we let go of all the things in the past that we've carried with us, excuse me, our, our entire lives with regret? And we all do it. And we all can't help but do it because we're taught to do it. We're taught that there's some value in first finding out what we've done that, that's wrong, that's hurt ourselves or others, then beat the hell out of ourselves for having done that, for acting as a human being, and cling to that as our identity. So you've all heard me say that one of the common human characteristics is self-loathing. That's an extreme way of saying or describing that internal process that, that happens to all of us. We can't help it. In fact, that's the way to describe it. We can't help it, but we can do something about it. We can take to the Dhamma like our hair is on fire and abandon these fabricated views that only cause harm to ourselves and because they harm us, we cannot help but harm others. And I don't mean in a, in a direct way. Sometimes it is with people. Some people's psychosis raised to the level of direct harm to others. Most, uh, most of the rest of us do it out of indifference and ignorance alone. And it's not an excuse, but it is a reason. And it's a reason why we should take to the Dhamma in a very gentle way, first towards ourselves and then towards others, as we start recognizing the root of our own aggressiveness and our own aggression. Then we can let go of that when we see it in others. We end conflict in our mind so that we can end conflict in the world. And that manifests, everything that we do manifests and becomes noticeable in our inter, interpersonal relationships. We had a really good talk on a Thursday class about that, about how the Dhamma changes that from a, a self-referential or self-centered way of engaging with others to a completely pure and conflict-free way, an impersonal way of dealing with interpersonal relationships. And some people, in fact, the question came up, well, how is that personal if you've let go of all self-referential views? It's the most personal way we can be with others because it's pure and it's intimate and it's mindful. It's without any me in there, without me needing something in this moment. Even if it's just a need to extract rightness from the person I'm engaging with, meaning 
they have to see me as the way that I see myself. That always introduces conflict. It's what causes conflict between people and it's what causes conflict between countries. And I don't mean to be too Pollyannish in making that statement. Look at all conflict in the world. That's where it begins. It has to begin within our minds before it can take place out into the world. Everything. It allows resolution. Pardon me? It allows resolution. Yes. Because of that, it allows resolution. We have control over it. In fact, as the Buddha teaches in the Vitaka Santana Sutta, we gain the ability to think what we want to think, when we want to think it, when it's appropriate to think this way. I can trust my mind to think what's appropriate because I have liberated my mind. Liberated my mind from what? From Four Noble Truths, from ignorance of Four Noble Truths, I should say. The disciple always happily awakens who constantly takes refuge in the Buddha. The disciple always happily awakens who constantly takes refuge in the Dhamma. The disciple always happily awakens who constantly takes refuge in a well-focused Sangha. Those last three are a reference to the triple refuge of we take refuge in the Buddha, his Dhamma, and a well-focused and well-informed Sangha. The first refers to taking refuge. Refuge is a place of safety and comfort, isn't it? We take refuge in the idea that a human being did this, a Buddha. Somebody just like us did this first. We didn't have to figure it out ourselves. All we've got to do is follow this guy or this guy. A human being did this. We can do it. And we're not left up to figure it out on ourselves, on our own either. He told us how to do it. He left his dhamma. It's still here. 2,600 years later, it's what we do here in this room. And we have that triple refuge established. You're all part of it. And there would be no well-focused, well-informed sangha without all of you. I don't constitute a well-informed, well-focused sangha. Just doesn't fit the word. A sangha is a congregation of people, a gathering of like-minded people with one purpose in mind, to awaken, according to the Dhamma, to gain full human maturity. Why? So we can re- ab- abandon ignorance of Four Noble Truths and be present for our life as our life unfolds. The disciple always happily awakens who constantly practice the four foundations of mindfulness. We all do that. We establish it in jhana meditation. That's where we establish the four foundations of mindfulness. Excuse me. So that off our cushion, we can take that developed jhana, that develop ever-deepening level of concentration off our cushion and into our moment-by-moment life. Why do we need jhana for moment-by-moment life? Can't we just live it? Isn't it just natural? Well, apparently not. It seems like we need a tool in order to be present for our life, but then it makes sense, doesn't it? If I need to be concentrated to be focused in this moment, then I need to be concentrated. And I have a very powerful way of doing it, a very simple way of doing it, a very human way of doing it. John and meditation. Anybody, any human being, can recognize when they're distracted by a feeling or a thought, or a thought attached to a feeling, meaning an emotion, we all have the ability to recognize it, and we all, in that moment, come, can come back to the sensation of breathing. There's nothing superhuman about that, is there? In fact, it's the most utterly human thing anybody can do. Take a breath. And yet, we've all struggled to do that. Isn't that curious? That even when we want to do something like jhana meditation, we still struggle with it? Why? 
because our minds are conditioned away from it. It's such a basic human conditioning to not be well concentrated. And we all experience that when we meditate. And even this meditator still experiences it. That's why I keep meditating. That's why the Buddha kept meditating for the last 45 years of his life, post-awakening. Why? To maintain and deepen concentration. And as we learn through the other suttas, speaking to directly to jhana, that is ever-deepening. There's no fixed point of concentration. Another way of saying that, it is as impermanent as everything else in the phenomenal world. So we tend to it through daily practice. The disciple always happily awakens who constantly delights in metta, in, in loving kindness towards others. The disciple always happily awakens who constantly practices jhana. The life of the disciple is difficult and hard to delight in. It's almost a defeatist negative thing to say, isn't it? But, so why is the Buddha saying it? Because he was a realist. He understood the difficulties of this even when he was sitting in front of the students and teaching them. The life of the disciple is difficult and hard to delight in. Well, why the hell would we want to do it then if it's so difficult and hard to delight in? Because it ends stress and suffering and it brings understanding. It brings true meaning to, for our, to our lives. If we're willing to let go of the need for this moment to be delightful or for me to be delightful in this moment, even if it's just in my own eyes, and do the hard work of awakening. Right effort. John, doesn't that go back to your first line? Yes. It does. And it, again, thank you, David. The Buddha's always bringing us back to that um, and reminding us, giving us the, the, the self-encouragement that we're all going to awaken if you just do this. It's difficult. Take refuge in the fact that, as the Buddha, that I did it. Take refuge in the fact that you have a large group of people that are doing the same thing in support of, of each other a well-focused and well-informed sonder. The living death of ignorance is difficult and full of sorrow, making the distinction. You want to do the difficult work, the sometimes less than delightful work, and abandon the living death of ignorance, which is difficult and full of sorrow. Association with the unwise brings suffering. Wandering in confusion and delusion is suffering. Again, remember... The setting. This is 2,600 years ago. The Buddha is talking to people that are grasping after their own salvation. And what does he say to them? Do not wander aimlessly. It's not out there, folks. Do not wander aimlessly, maintaining the distraction of suffering. Stop. Years and years ago, I read. A, uh, I used to read this author. His name was Ogmandino. He was a, a, a spiritual success writer. Um, not as well known as people like Napoleon Hill and U.S. Anderson, but uh, nevertheless, I think one of the best, even though ultimately he wasn't teaching Buddhism. But he wrote some great books. And one of them was this book called The Choice, and I still remember a line in there. The book was about, I think it's still available, was how um, seemingly insignificant choices, where I might go get, get a haircut today, can lead to a whole lifetime of events. And it's really a brilliant book. But one of the things that he says in there, I remember he was a spiritual success writer where most of the uh, thinking back then, and this is 
uh, late 50s, 60s, 70s, around the 80s, those times when publications started petering out. Uh, but he said, if you get to a point in your life where you're happy, stop. He said, you don't have to keep chasing things. Now, again, he wasn't teaching the Dhamma. The Buddha is saying something very similar. He says, when you get to the point where you've established true happiness, then you can stop, then you can rest, then you can be at peace. Because as the Buddha would describe it, you've reached the end of the path. Hopefully for many of us, we'll reach the end of that path with 45 years left to go in the other path, in the, in the, in the continuation of life. Because then we're present for it. But even if we only have two or three moments left in this physical life, the reward of awakening is powerful, it's palpable, and it's worthwhile to have one moment of living your life. Because that moment stands you on the edge of eternity. Meaning, it doesn't, you don't engage into some mystical understanding of all things. You're standing at the only point that you can to experience eternity, which is right here and right now. Another way of saying that is every moment in my life that I've ever experienced is culminating right here and right now if I allow myself to be present for it. It certainly doesn't mean that my life is over, at least, <laughs> at least I hope not. But if I want to appreciate my entire life, everything that's ever occurred, the good and the bad, the sorrow and the joy, I have to be present for this moment, don't I? I can't prepare myself to be alive in a future moment. Think about that for I mean think about all the think about all the self-help books that I read. Think about all the self-help books that Ron took out of my house a year ago about this time. Hundreds of them, yeah. That's always about how good I can be. Or how good I might be. But it's never good enough here, is it? We're never good enough right here, right now. Self-loathing, the primary human disease. But when I learn the radical acceptance of a Buddha, I realize that there's nothing else that I can do to change myself right here and right now except be present for what's occurring. To be mindful of who and what I am and how I'm relating to the world around me. And if there's some conflict or distraction or disappointment or stress or suffering in that, I know the reason why. It's not your fault. It's not the world's fault. It's not the current president's fault. It's nobody's fault if I'm in distress or discontent in this moment. And the greatest power I've ever come across is the knowledge that my discontent is my discontent. And by owning that, I can also say that my peace is my peace. I own it. It's not dependent on anything or anyone in the world. This is the radical acceptance that the Buddha was teaching and he, and he taught through his Dhamma that culminates in this way. The Eightfold Path is not intended to be an escape from reality through continued fabricated views. This is my comment. Now. The right, right effort, the sixth factor of the path, guides an informed, wise and content engagement with the entire path. The Buddha's words. With conviction, the disciple is endowed with virtue, good repute, and knowledge. They are always respected. Why? It's not because they demand it. It's because a person who actually deserves respect is naturally given respect by others. Because others can feel that there's no conflict left here. 
That's how the Buddha spread his word, by the way. It wasn't by advertising on Facebook. It was by people recognizing that he was a good man who understood what he was talking about. He carried himself with peace and equanimity. And when others saw that, they wanted to hear what he had to say. I think everyone in here has described that in one way or another, that people have noticed the change in them. That's all we can do. That is the most powerful thing we can do for the world, is to prepare ourselves in a way that other people notice the change, that we're more peaceful, we're calm. We're not, con we're not contributing to conflict anymore, or actually the resolution of it. The disciple shines from a great distance like the Himalaya mountains. Fools are not seen like an arrow at night. The disciple, having established seclusion with right effort, restrains themselves alone and delights in solitude. I'm going to read that again. It's the end of the chapter. The disciple, having established seclusion, first we do that with jhana meditation, don't we? With right effort, restrains themselves alone and delights in solitude. Restrains themselves alone is an important line, too. We're not worried about restraining others. <laughs> We don't care if other people learn to restrain themselves because we've extricated ourselves from the entanglements of the world. That's no longer required for us to be peaceful and calm and content. I've learned to restrain myself. And if I've truly learned to restrain myself, and this is a good way to, to tell if you, if you really have restrained yourself, is you won't need to restrain anyone else. You can stop trying to tame the wild elephant of the world and rest and be at peace with your own understanding. And how can any human being possibly do that? Only through understanding the true nature of life for the truth. That's today's class. Uh, let's go online. Uh, Brian has joined us this morning. Brian, how are you? Good, John. Thanks. How are you? I'm good. Thanks for asking. John, thank you. <laughs> thanks, Brian. Good, good to see you again. I forgot your name. I'm oh, sorry. Aaron. Aaron. I thought it was that. Take care. It's good to see you both. Sorry, Brian. Doors. Um, the the life of the disciple is difficult, and I, I feel that. But with right view, you see just how awful the alternative is, yeah. and the, the suffering that that's a derivative of, of that ignorance. And being able to maintain those that perspective just leads to a natural peace and contentment. And, you know, it's not this like happy puppy dogs and unicorns every single second of the day, but it's, it's peaceful. Yeah. And it, yeah I, again, thank you for the yeah. teaching. I appreciate it. Yeah. Thank you, Brian. Yeah. This isn't something we do out of grim determination or, or stoicism. Somebody was talking about, isn't this the same as stoicism? No, it's not. That's actually quite no. different. Um, and, and the, one of the reasons why I talk about being gentle with ourselves is there, the dominant itself is gentle by its nature i think it must be gentle and it, it only seems harsh when we come up against the, the things that we are holding on to the most but thank you brian uh it's a it's 17 after nine so i think you got a couple of minutes nina um i'm gonna take noble silence i'm glad you're here dustin good morning good to see you good morning um yeah it makes sense that um I think I start to see in the world how I used to be when I talk to people 
Yeah. How they make it just about themselves right away, and they just sort of I they really protect that eye making, you know, that yeah. that self. Um, <clears throat> I think I even said to Nina the other day, I was like, "Am I depressed? Like, I don't really want to go out and be around a lot of people as much since I've been doing this. I sort of am content being around just." you know, the few people in my life and yeah. gatherings, even though, you know, we're not doing that that much. I don't feel drawn to things with people. Um, and it feels good. It yeah. feels content. But I do notice the way that I was a lot in other people. Yeah. And it's, it's, it's humbling, I guess. Hey, thank you, Dustin. Thanks for your honesty. It is humbling. Um, but it's also um, a natural occurrence of developing the Dhamma. It, it has nothing to do with isolation or even um, uh, discounting other people. It's just a, it's, a, it's a natural occurrence of developing a common, peaceful mind. We're just simply not that entangled in the world anymore. So we're not drawn to situations that might lead to that. Or at, and it's not necessarily that there'll be... Um, that the event might be hurtful in some way. It doesn't have to be. It's just a distraction. And a calm and peaceful mind starts appreciating that calm and peace. And, and uh, another aspect of, um, that I've noticed in many people, including myself, is we seem, the, the more time we put in meditation and Dharma practice, it seems like the more time we have just in general in life. And I think it's because, I know it's because, I'm not filling up my life with a lot of unnecessary and distracting events just to do them, just to keep the distraction going. Uh, I, I've lived pretty successfully um, never never going to uh, Facebook or Twitter or tweeting anything or anything like that. Uh, contrast that to the way a lot of the world, and I'm just using that as an example. You can live very well in the world without engaging in everything in the world. In fact, you'll live a lot better if you learn wise discernment. And what do I need most for my happiness and my contentment right here and right now. It does take certain engagement in the world. We're human beings. We're, we're supposed to be involved in other people's lives, but not entangled in other people's lives. And you just described that wonderfully well. Thank you, Dustin. Good morning, Adam. Good morning, John. <clears throat> Thank you uh, for that. Um, I was drawn by the, the section on the life of the disciple being difficult. Um, and, you know, sort of appearing to be a, a, a hard road when you first embark upon it, but really that kind of points to, I think, um, or I say it's a good, that points to our our need for everything to be delightful, our attachment yeah. to things to you know have to go a certain way or what have you. But once you start down the path and you're and you're practicing jhana meditation and you know releasing your attachment to things like that, that the delight comes kind of automatically as like a as a natural consequence of letting go of the need for things to be delightful. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that, that, that's uh, well said. Uh, it, it, David and I are both reading this book right now that I recommend to everyone, especially if you're prone to compulsive behavior. It's called Dopamine Nation. And uh, she makes this brilliant point there about how uh, just as um, electrochemical beings, when something gives us pleasure, we have a dopamine response that creates uh, the desire for more of the same and more of something that is delightful. And so, and she happened to get fall. She her addiction or compulsion was romance novels, 
but she actually experienced everything. I mean, I'm a, I'm a, uh, a recovered drug addict and alcoholic, but she describes that same experience of the dopamine release and the prone um, or the desire for more uh, from from romance novels. She got the same thing, the same distraction. And isn't it interesting that we have it a, a a mechanism within ourselves that rewards distraction? And it's so rewarding that most of us, I would say probably every human being, gets caught up in this dopamine response. And she goes deeper into the book about how then we become addicted to discontent because the, the discontent in our lives is part of the cycle, the dopamine cycle. And do you ever wonder why you keep doing the same hurtful things over again? Again, not to not, not take responsibility, it's because we're chemically programmed to do these things. Once we condition our mind, and the thing that's so interesting about this book to me is that it describes the internal chemical me- mechanism for maintaining ignorance. We are chemically induced towards distraction, towards stress and suffering, towards grabbing after what is delightful. And it might not even be, I can tell you that the, the last swallow of warm vodka I ever took was probably one of the most disgusting things I ever drank. In the moment, it was delightful. In the moment, it was delightful. Why? Because it was giving me that dopamine response. There was no, in any addict's life, I'm, now I'm talking about severe addiction, but anybody, whether it's, whether it's food, sex, TV, Facebook, whatever it is, <coughs> there's always that disappointment after I click the the, the send button, after I took a drink, after I just had sex, after I saw a wonderful sunset. The response is the same. I want more. A mind that is not concentrated will always want more. A mind that is concentrated and understanding the impermanence of all things knows that the drink ends and the sunset ends. It's all the same thing. It's all part of impermanence. So thank you, Adam. That's a quick follow-up. Please. <clears throat> what if I'm getting a sense of delight from jhana meditation? Keep it up. Keep it up. <laughs> Again, you bring up a good point. I don't mean to be flippant about it. There's a word for even that, believe it or not. And it's called Chanda, C-H-A-N-D-A, which happened to be the name of Siddhartha's horse, but it had no connection. Um, Chanda means skillful desire. And of course, and even the Buddha alludes to that, that the desire towards awakening is, should be cultivated and it should be recognized because we all have that within us too or we wouldn't be sitting here right now. All of us have recognized something missing in our life. We, we might see it in different ways. But we recognize that we, need, we might need more spirituality. Or we might need, or we have a monkey mind. A lot of people come to me and say, I have this monkey mind. Can you help it? Maybe. You know, if you do this and that, you can. Um, we all have it. We all realize that something needs, well, I shouldn't say everyone. Many people realize that there's something wrong or missing in their life. They usually attribute it to something wrong or missing with them. But what is it? What, what is it that's often wrong or missing? What, what's missing from me when I don't understand how to change the oil in my car? I just never learned how to do it. It's a simple thing to do, isn't it? What's wrong or missing in me if I don't understand my life? Not understanding my life. How do I understand it? Through understanding Four Noble Truths. Again, it might sound too simplistic. Maybe it is for many people, but it wasn't for me. Because it seemed to me that once I could understand Four Noble Truths, I did understand myself, and I did understand the world. And from the time I was born and slapped by the doctor, and I turned around and I slapped him back, (laughs) from that moment on, 
It's really true. My mom did not. <laughs> From that moment on, I was frustrated with life. Why? Because I didn't understand why the doctor smacked me. I didn't realize he was trying to give me life. But because I didn't understand it, I regretted it. I resented it. And I fought back. And I fought back my whole life. Fought back against what? I fought back against every idea that I had because the idea was rooted in the conditioned way of ignorance of Four Noble Truths. And it wasn't until, as the Buddha says here, I was able to renounce that way of thinking, was I able to understand what was occurring. Up until that point, I was too distracted by my own entanglements, my own views in the world, as Dustin was just saying. I was too delighted in myself, in my eye-making, as Adam just said. And if you think about what they described, the lesser pleasures versus the greater pleasures of this, like the seven factors of awakening, you know, joyful engagement, or tranquility that Justin described, Dustin, I'm sorry, People want to like say that. Am I allowed to do that? Well, yeah. Who says be joyful? Yeah, yes. Be skillfully joyful, and that's I think sometimes people see Buddhism as this negative, giving things up, and really what you're doing is you're embracing yeah. yourself at that moment. Yeah. Thank you, David. Uh, the the uh, the greater happiness is just that, isn't it? It's understanding who and what we are. Thank you. Uh, Lauren? Yes. <laughs> Thank you so much for that teaching, John. That was great. Um, what really struck me today was the difference between concentration and striving and mm -hmm. what comfort there is in the idea of um, spending life being more concentrated in the moment rather than striving for some future potentially unachievable idea of oneself yeah. or what life should be and how I'm just relating that to then the idea of, of feeling aimless versus being concentrated in what's happening in the moment feels like well you're here yeah you've arrived there's nowhere to go from here except just to be here right now yeah that's really what resonated with me today. Yeah, thank you, Lauren. That is that's the true power of now, and not not to take any anything away from Mr. Tolley. That the the it, it's the reward of life is simply to be, to be present for it, and then each moment has meaning. It doesn't need to be any different. And I would say you're gaining a great insight into that rather quickly. So, thank you. I'm glad you're here, Laura. Hi, John. Thank you for having me. Glad you're here wonderful listening to everyone um, and I was yeah thinking about actually David's talk on the, the retreat which he just mentioned on the factors of awakening that it reminds me again that what we're doing here it's not um, training us to be zombie like or stoic or be complacent or um, indifferent um, it kind of I guess, like you were saying before, when you're skillfully taking part in life and you know um, being present as it unfolds, it's being dispassionate. It's not. It's 
it's kind of hard to understand that it's not necessarily impersonal, but it's, like you said this morning, it's one of the most beautiful and joyful things just to be fully present with someone, which is the, you know, which leads to greater happiness. So it's, it's difficult for our minds, which are so addicted to these yeah. dopamine rushes and ephemeral states of happiness to, you know, to really grasp that. But then when it does happen, it's, it's one of the most beautiful moments of, you know, tranquility that you can have. But maintaining that is, is, you know, what we, that's why we do jhana, to experience that more often. What a, what a great Dhamma teacher. Thank you. It really is. Thank you. That, 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 yeah. See you, Dustin. See you, Nina. Bye. See you. Thank you. Bye. See you soon. Yeah. Yeah. And, and you've had those beautiful moments, have you? Have you? Very, very brief. But they're recognizable. They're, they're recognizable, but then sometimes it's, it's depressing for me when I resort or um, revert back to old habits, you know. Then do jhana. Yep. That's why we do that. Yeah. And let go of that, that need that you should be different than you are. Yes. I, and it is kind of a, uh, uh, a circuitous way of getting stuck in our minds when, we, when we're doing jhana and then we start judging ourselves harshly because we realize we should continue to do, that, do jhana. <laughs> but the, the, again, the Dhamma uh, resolves that riddle too within us, doesn't it? And we've learned to be very gentle with ourselves, especially when we realize there's just a little bit more to do. And we have more and more of those beautiful moments. So thank you. Mary, any beautiful moments? <laughs> um, no, things are going well. Um, I thought this was a really nice teaching. And um, really just the, the knowing, I, what is your name? Laura. Laura, Mary. Um, just the knowing that just came out of your mouth and your understanding really shows a good grasp of things because you even I, you even uh, discern between uh, grasping after that good feeling versus sustaining the good that comes from the you know jhana meditation and, and having a practice. So I really thought that was rather sophisticated. So. Um, I, I thought this was really good because sometimes we listen and we're all like, oh wow, that was a really good one because it was had a metaphor, or, you know, it was lighter, right? And sometimes yeah. you need something a little lighter. Yeah. This one's a heavier one, right? This one is, as you said, the you know, train coming to the culmination of the series and a, you know, a serious reminder of um, the importance of the work and the difficulty of the work. And as you're as your practice progresses and you knock off all the easy stuff, you know, you're left with some of the harder things yeah. to continue to abandon. So, um, again, the recipe is the same. Yeah. You know, the recipe is the same. Maintain your practice. So, thank you, John. Uh, thank you, Mary. Again, very wise words. So, yeah, we, we can get to the point at times in Dharma practice where uh, we, we've let go of a lot of the, the, the grosser stuff. Uh, the obvious stuff and what we're left with can be um, it can be daunting if we take that personal but again we, we just recognize it's just something that we acquired out of ignorance we take a breath and we continue with Dharma practice and all of it 
uh, eventually falls, falls away, and that's probably the best way to describe it. There's a directness to our practice, but the, the abandoning is more of a, a, a release and a relief than anything else. Uh, in other words, it's not, it's not harsh at some point. We just um, gently move through our, our own ignorance and develop this profound understanding of what, what it means to be a human being. Good morning, David. Thank you, David. Understanding. Good morning, Ralph. Good morning. Uh, I wanted to get back to Adam's uh, question about um, pleasure in in meditation. Um, in the description of the of the jhanas, there that that comes up, mm. and <clears throat> so it, it recognizes that this does happen in in meditation. The warning that comes with that is, don't get stuck to that. Yeah. You know, it's, uh, it, yes, the, it's pleasurable, but as soon as you start wanting more of that, you're yeah, you, you know you just lost your little you just lost your meditation. Yeah. Um, but good point. It's there, and it's it's it is one of the greatest pleasures. But even that, every level of jhana, mm -hmm. Buddha would say, and there's even deeper levels of jhana. There's even deeper levels of jhana. Yeah. That's all I have to say. Wow. Again, very wise. It, it's, it, it, it is important to remember that. We're not, we're not moving towards some stagnant place. We couldn't be. You know, there's nothing stagnant in the world until uh, you know, the, the, the final breath. Um, and then that's it. You know, as far as the Dhamma is concerned... We just get this time that we have here, whatever that arbitrary time is. And like he taught Bahia, we never know when the cow's going to come and trample us to death. So let's take to the Dhamma. Let's get to it, because this is the most important thing. And then even beyond that, even beyond the, uh, the legitimacy of using uh, in the permanent human life as motivation, it's, it's the practical view of, all right, if I'm going to do it, I might as well do it. You know? And you really might as well do it, because the only way you're going to know if it if you actually can do it is to do it, and then you realize you can do it. <laughs> Thank you all again. It's just a wonderful class. Um, we have a, a five five more chapters, or four five more, I guess, um, and then we're going to be moving on to something uh, something else, another structured study, and then we're going to do the truth of happiness a little bit later in the in the year, I think.
But I may change my mind. I notice my mind is even more impermanent than it used to be. <laughs> you can always get another one. You can always get another one. My good friend, Brother Ken. Brother Ken had nine nervous breakdowns. I, I got to look into I always, When I say it, I say, I don't know if you can still say nervous breakdowns. <clears throat> but anyway, he did. Uh, he was such a great friend of mine. And he used to say, he said, it's okay to lose your mind. You just get another one. <laughs> he, he was the most, he was, nine nervous breakdowns, he was the most grounded, centered human being I ever met. Just get another one. That's what we're doing. All right, just take a moment to become mindful of your in-breath and your out-breath and let that mindfulness of your breath unite your mind and your body. And these are the Buddha's words on metta from the Karaniya Metta Sutta. This is what should be done by one who is skilled in goodness and who knows the path of peace. Let them be able and upright, straightforward and gentle in speech, humble and not conceited, contented and easily satisfied. Unburdened with duties and frugal in their ways, peaceful and calm and wise and skillful, not proud or demanding in nature. Let them not do the slightest thing that the wise would later reprove. May all beings be at ease. Whatever living beings there may be, whether they are weak or strong, omitting none, the great or the mighty, medium, short or small, the seen and the unseen, those living near and far away, those born and to be born, may all beings be at ease. Let none deceive another or despise any being in any state let none through anger or ill will wish harm upon another. Even as a mother protects with her life her child, her only child, so with a boundless heart should one cherish all living beings. Radiating kindness over the entire world, spreading upwards to the skies and downwards to the depths, outwards and unbounded, freed from hatred and ill will. Whether standing or walking, seated or lying down, free from drowsiness, one should sustain this recollection. This is said to be the sublime abiding. By not holding to fixed views, the pure-hearted one, having clarity of vision, being freed from all sense desires, is not born again into this world. Thank you all for a wonderful class today. Thank you. Peace. Thank you. Thank you. See you, Brian. See you, everybody. Bye, Bye Brian. Bye. Bye. <laughs> Thank you for listening. I rely on donations to support the continued restoration, preservation, and presentation of the Buddha's Dhamma. If you find benefit here, please consider a donation at becoming-buddha.com. Thank you. Peace.